0: We're going to be talking about deserts uh, for the next month. Aren't you excited talking about deserts? I decided to do a little bit of research this week. I grew up watching PBS. Any other big PBS fans in the room? Yeah, yeah. Woohoo! Public learning. Woohoo, yeah. So, um,. Uh, I loved watching nature documentaries growing up. I loved watching Cratch Creatures and all those kinds of things. Uh, And and so this week, as we were getting into this series about deserts, I thought, well, maybe I'll do some research on deserts, and and that proved interesting for me. I want to share some some facts with you now. Uh, Did you know that deserts are defined as anywhere in the world that receives less than 16 inches of rain a year? It's less than 16 inches of rain in a full calendar year. That's just over a foot of water. That's all they get, or less, uh, sometimes substantially less. Now, deserts are extreme places. Yeah? They're extreme in their, in their lack of rainfall. They're also extreme in temperatures. Now, we know that deserts get hot. Uh, The Sahara Desert is the biggest desert in the world, and it's also the hottest one. On average, it averages somewhere between 104 and 116 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. And the hottest recorded temperature in the Sahara Desert is 136 degrees Fahrenheit. Who wants to move there, yeah? Uh, We can all relate to that kind of feeling right now, I think, in Texas since summer has already hit. Um, Deserts also get cold. I didn't know this uh, er- earlier in my life. I didn't realize that deserts could get also very, very cold. Remember, it's the rainfall that defines a desert. So uh, the Antarctic, for instance. Antarctica is a huge desert, even though we don't really think of it that way. Uh, it gets extremely cold, negative 56 degrees. That's its, an- that's its average temperature, negative 56 degrees. Lord Jesus, please come back. That is not supposed to happen on this earth. Um, the record is negative 136 degrees Fahrenheit. I said that correctly. Um, deserts. Are you getting the picture? Deserts are extreme places. They don't get a lot of water. They experience the hottest of hots and the coldest of colds. And yet, here's the crazy thing: on this planet Earth, 33 percent of our land is desert. Almost about one third of the world is of the land on the world is is desert. So in a literal sense, we find ourselves in deserts quite a bit. This world's chock full of them. Of course, people don't really settle in the desert. The desert is kind of this transitional land. You know, even if you live in the desert, you're a nomad. You move from place to place because you can't cultivate the land. You can't farm. You can't raise, you know, uh, crops or, 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 or livestock. And so when you're in the desert, you're on the move. And most people don't even live in the desert long term. They're usually traveling through the desert to get somewhere else. So you're leaving the place behind, that, you, that you've left that, that is no longer the same. You're, you're not going back there. Instead, you're going to some sort of distant place off in the future, and many times you're not even sure where exactly it is or what it's even going to look like. Not only do we spend a lot of time in deserts, literally we spend a lot of time in deserts figuratively in this life. We spend a lot of times in these seasons of extreme, ex- seasons of extreme stress or extreme difficulty. When water seems to run short and the temperatures are very high or very low, are you in a desert this morning? Have you just entered into one? are you in the middle of one or you may be about to get it outside of one? you think, do you know somebody in your life who's in a desert? Have you been in the desert? Before, do you know what that feels like? The blistering heat, the searing sun, the wild wind. In life, the desert looks like seeing the person you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with have an affair and everything changes. It looks like showing up to work for what should be a normal day at the office and leaving with all of your things in a cardboard box because you got let go. It looks like waking up in the hospital room um, because your partner puts you there and you realize that your relationship isn't what you thought it was. It looks like sitting in the doctor's office and hearing the words, the test came back positive. Have you been in the desert? Do you know what it feels like? Are you in the desert today? This is what we're going to be talking about for the next month, what it looks like to live in the desert. Because if we're going to spend so much of our time and our lives in this place that is extreme and at times even punishing, then we need to learn what it looks like to survive and even thrive in the desert. So today, I want us to wrestle with a really big question that comes out of this idea of living in deserts. When I find myself in a season of difficulty, When we find ourselves in the deserts in a season of difficulty, is that a part of God's plan? That's a big question. Luckily for us, we don't have to answer this on our own. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the book of Exodus. Uh, This month, we'll be studying the story of the Hebrew people as they wandered through their own desert, both literally and figuratively, uh, after leaving slavery in Egypt and, and going into the promised land. Uh, uh, that they didn't even know what it looked like, but they knew God was leading them there. We're going to use their story found in Exodus and the book of Numbers. Everybody's favorite book is the book of Numbers, right? And um, we're going to use those two books to guide our time this month and understand what it looks like to live in the desert through the story of the Israelites. Now, maybe this is your first Sunday in church. Maybe it's your first Sunday in a long time, or maybe you just want a refresh uh, this is the story up until the, the point of our scripture today. Here's the story of Exodus is, uh, th- there's this boy that's born uh, a Hebrew, but he's raised through a series of very fortunate events. He's raised in the house of Pharaoh. His name is Moses. And when, he, and when he's an adult, he sees a slave driver beating a Hebrew slave and he kills him. And so then, because he knows uh, he'll be found guilty and, and wanted for that, he runs to the wilderness. And it's out in the wilderness that he finds God, and God meets him for the very first time. And and speaks a calling into his life to go back and to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery uh, and into freedom and so Moses does that along with the help of his brother Aaron they go and they and they argue with Pharaoh they try to let get Pharaoh to let his, the people go Pharaoh has a hardened heart and he won't and so God brings 10 plagues upon the house of Pharaoh every time hoping that Pharaoh will release the people they don't until finally the 10th plague takes place and Pharaoh relents and says fine take your people and go and so Moses leads the people away from Egypt all the way to the Red Sea Pharaoh realizes that he actually doesn't want them to leave so he gets all of his army together and they go to pursue and they follow the Israelites, the Hebrew people. They follow them until they reach the Red Sea, and it's sort of this moment where, oh no, our backs are against this huge body of water. What's going to happen? And so then God does something miraculous. He parts the waters, and you can imagine the tens and tens and tens of feet of water on either side as they're walking through this enormously incredible moment. And as they pass through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is coming even closer, and right as they're about to get them, God smashes the water back in. The most powerful army in the known world at the time, God conquers them with With one fell swoop. And then the Israelites, the Hebrew people, walk through the other side of the Red Sea. And that's where we're going to start today. We're not going to talk about any of that stuff that I just mentioned. Wasn't that an exciting story? (laughs) Now, that would be fun to study for a month, right? Um, That's where our story begins. Right after they leave the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army conquered by God in a miraculous moment. They've witnessed all these plagues. They've witnessed the power of their God to overthrow even the mightiest of empires. And then they set foot into a desert, a place that will be their home for what becomes 40 years. They don't know this at the time, of course. That'd be a hard sell. (laughs) Hey, you want to come wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Nah, we're good. Thanks, though, God. That's great. Um, They're going to end up wandering for 40 years on the way to this promised land. They don't even know... What it looks like. All they've heard is it's a land of milk and honey. Which is kind of awkward and sticky. But um, they think it sounds nice. And that's where our story begins. Exodus chapter 15. Beginning in verse 22. It says this. You can see it on our screens. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. No water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. That is why it was called Mara, which means bitterness. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood or maybe a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, You will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give give heed to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word this morning. We ask that as we begin to uh, understand what it means for our lives, that you would allow these words to come alive for us and take root in our hearts. Uh, God, I ask that you would speak through me, uh, your failed and broken servant, uh, that it would not be my words, but your words this morning. And God, I ask that you would uh, place these words, set them upon our hearts, that we could take them into the world that needs to hear them. In your sons, when we pray, amen. So... Earlier I said the big question we're going to wrestle with today is when I find seasons of difficulty, or when I'm in a difficult season, is that a part of God's plan? And I want to help, you, I want to help us understand where we're coming with that question in this text this morning. See, the, the, the Hebrew people have just left the Red Sea. They've agreed to follow Moses and therefore follow God into this journey to a promised land. They go three days, three days without finding water. And then they stumble across this bitter spring, which means it probably was a saltwater spring. Those, those occur in the desert. And um, what do they do? They freak out. What are we going to drink? You know, first they turn on Moses, their leader, right? Because that's the first person we blame. We turn, hey, you're the guy that let us out here, right? And so Moses is like, well, it's not me. You're the guy that let us out here. So Moses takes it right up the chain of command, right? He says, what are you going to do about this, God? Um, I think the Israelites, now we'll talk about the complaining spirit sometime this month, not today. We're not going to focus on that today, but trust me, when we're in the desert, we love to complain and grumble and mumble. Um, we're going to talk about that. Today, I want to talk about why the Israelites seem to be freaking out in that moment. And I think it has everything to do with that big question of when I'm in this season of difficulty, is this a part of God's plan? I think they got to Mara and said, is this really the plan? <laughs> This, this, this is it. You're going to lead us thirsty for three days, and then when we get to something to drink, it's salt water. Like, have you ever tried to drink salt water? It's not fun. You can't drink it. You can't survive off of that. I think they're thinking in their heads, this was not part of the plan. This can't possibly be your plan, God, right? And so I think that big question suddenly becomes two for us this morning that I want us to go deep on. The first is this is is this meaning the desert the season of difficulty is this really part of God's plan for my life and then depending on that that answer second question is this is there any hope in the desert because the the Hebrew people are seeing a spring of salt water going this can't be God's plan right and then very quickly they turn to become hopeless what are we going to drink have you ever been three days thirsty in the desert, wondering what the plan is? Is this a part of God's plan, and is there any hope? So to the first question, I think there's a few different answers that we're going to talk about this morning. I think the answers are no and yes and no, (laughs) and I'll explain why. And then I believe in each of those answers, though, there is hope to be found. I think there is always hope in the desert. So the first answer, um, is this really part of God's plan? Uh, To help illustrate my answer to this, I'm going to share with you a story. Uh, In the country of Morocco, Morocco is in the northwestern corner of Africa. It's on the western side of the Sahara Desert. And and there's a marathon, a famous marathon that's run in Morocco called the Marathon de Saab, which is a French term that means the marathon of sand. And evidently there are people in this world who do not believe that running uh, on a sidewalk like a normal human being is punishing enough. Uh, They think that they should go running in the Sahara Desert. And that's what they do for days and days on end in, a, in like a, over a 150 mile long marathon called the Marathon de Saab. They run a marathon in the Sahara Desert. I think we have a picture of that we can put on the screens. Um, you're looking at the most insane people on the face of the planet. There they are, right there. Um, we've got them in one picture. Uh, I don't understand what goes through someone's head to want them, make them want to do that, but evidently there are several people who want to do that. Uh, one year, there was a man who wanted to do this. His name was Mauro Prosperi. He was a Sicilian policeman and also an Olympic pentathlete. So, this guy was an athlete. He was an Olympic pentathlete. He knew what he was doing. He wanted the most challenging race he could find, and he found this one. And he wanted to win. So, they set out to race. Four days into the race, which, by the way, like 30 minutes in, I would have been turning back like, y'all have fun. I'm done. Um, Four days into this race, a sandstorm hits. Now, here's the deal. The people that organize this race know very well that this race brings with it the reality of possible death right? Like they understand that this is kind of crazy to be doing. So they have very strict rules about what to do, especially in the event of things like sandstorms. And in the event of a sandstorm, you're supposed to hunker down, not move an inch, you stay with your people in front of you and behind you, and you just wait it out. Because if it, it, you would have to be especially crazy to go running in a sandstorm, right? Well, what do we think Mora's is going to do? He's going to go running in a sandstorm. He's winning this race. So he takes his scarf, he wraps it around his head, and he starts setting off. And he's, he's thinking, oh, this is a great way to catch up time. No one else can be running during this sandstorm. This is great. This is the best idea I've ever had. And after six hours of pushing through in this sandstorm, the, the storm finally subsides. The air around him clears. He looks around. Nobody. Nobody anywhere. He calls out, Hello? nobody. He sends up a signal flare. Nobody. Now, before Moro was running in the desert, now Moro is in the desert. Yeah, there's a difference. (laughs) He's not running the marathon anymore. He keeps going. He begins to run out of water. After a few days, he stumbles across this ancient shrine. He's severely dehydrated. He sees no hope in his life at all. He knows that he's probably going to die, and so he tries to end his life. But he's so dehydrated, get this, that his blood clots too quickly, he doesn't die. He wakes up several hours later with a raging headache, I can imagine, and he decides that he wants to live, so he's going to get up and he's going to keep going because he is moro, and he goes running, Right? He keeps going for four more days, eating lizards and scorpions. Yes, scorpions. He saw scorpions and said, I want to eat that. That's how hungry he is. He drank dew off of leaves. Four days he pushes until finally, by I can only imagine is the grace of God, he stumbles across some nomads who are wandering through the desert who I'm sure were like, what is this dude doing? They inform him that he is now in Algeria the neighboring country of Morocco, and he is 130 miles off the course of the marathon. Moro survives. His application to run in next year's race is denied. (laughs) Um, And the reason I share this story with you is because when I find myself in the desert, there are times when I have to ask myself this question, and I wonder if we all should ask ourselves these questions. The question I ask myself is this, did God lead me into the desert, or did I go running in a sandstorm? See, I think it's easy when we find ourselves in the desert to want to immediately shift blame to God. What are you thinking, God? Why would you bring me here? And God's going, hey, man... um, The route is like 130 miles that way in Morocco, and you're in Algeria. Um, There was a sandstorm. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I told you to hunker down, but you decided to keep running. So uh, I don't really know what what, what you're mad at me about. There are so many times I want to shake my fist at God and say, why would you lead me here when the reality is I just bundled up my head and, and tried to go running in a sandstorm. Have you ever done something like that as well? Have you done the exact thing you knew that you weren't supposed to do? Have you acted in a way that you knew was not holy or becoming of the gospel? Did, did you lead your life in a way that you knew God was not asking you to, you to lead your life? And, and then you find yourself in Algeria and you go, Well, God, why is this happening? You know, it's because we go running in sandstorms. So then you say, Well, okay, Pastor Scott, that's thoroughly depressing. You're saying if anything bad happens in my life, it's my fault, right? <laughs> No, I'm not saying that. That's the first answer. Um, the first answer is, is no, I don't think God always brings us into the desert. I think sometimes we go running in sandstorms. So, Scott, where's the, where's the hope in that then? If God didn't lead me there, I guess, what, am I, am I just doomed to suffer? No, I don't believe that at all. I believe that just like with Morrow, God will frequently send us nomads someone who's wandering in the desert who can reroute us back to where we're supposed to be back to a path of life that my friends is a god of mercy and i have to believe in a god of mercy because i go running in sandstorms way too often i need to know that my god has grace and mercy big enough for even someone as broken and foolish as me do you am i the only i guess i i know i do do you (laughs) I need my God to have grace and mercy that abounds, that even when I'm 130 miles off course somewhere in Algeria, God says, oh, there he is. Let me get him back on path. I need a God like that in my life. That's not the only way we end up in deserts, though. I, I, the second way we end up in deserts is I think that sometimes absolutely God will lead us into the desert. Just like God led the people of the, the Hebrew tribe who became the, the nation of Israel, God leads the Hebrew people into the desert. Um, and in the same way, I think that, that the only way God leads us into the desert is with a very specific purpose. I don't think God sends us into difficult seasons or into seasons of pain or even suffering without a very clear purpose of why. But I do believe that God can lead us into difficult situations and difficult seasons. God does it throughout the Bible. God does it with the Apostle Paul in the new church. I mean, go look up Paul's story. Carolyn talked about Paul a couple weeks ago in her sermon. Um, God clearly will lead us into difficult situations, but there's always a clear purpose, and the purpose is this. God leads us into the desert. Because something better, healthier, or holier is on the other side. So for the people, the Hebrew people, God leads them into the desert, not just because he wants to see them wander in a desert for 40 years, but because he knows that the life in Egypt is not for them. The life in Egypt is punishing and brutal and without purpose, and it's not holy, and it's not good, and it's not healthy, and it's not good for them, and it's not good for anybody. And he leads them into the desert, which is difficult in its own way so that they can figure out who they are and establish an identity and then find their way to a promised land and build for themselves a nation so so that they don't have to experience the chains of bondage like they did in Egypt. It's still a difficult season, but it's a difficult season now with a purpose, and it leads them to something healthier or better or holier on the other side. So what does this look like in the real world? It looks like a conversation I had this week. Uh, this past week, I was over at, um, outside the coffee shop here on campus, and I was talking with a young woman uh, who attends one of our worship services, and, um, and I was just asking her how she's doing. Hey, you know, just doing the typical, certain, you know, small talk. Hey, you know, how's it going? How's life? I, I could sense there was some heaviness in her, in her eyes and just in her demeanor, and um, she said, you know, it's, it's been a rough couple weeks. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you know, what happened? And she said, well, I was in the hospital, I said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. You know, what were you sick? You know what? Are you feeling better?" Um, and she said, "No, I, I wasn't sick. Um, I was in the hospital because my fiance put me there. Um, he hit me a couple times in the head, and that's when I noticed that she wasn't wearing her engagement ring any longer." And um, I said, I'm, I'm, "I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that you've had to go through this." And and she said, "No, it's." I mean, it, it stinks. It's terrible. It's the worst. And at the same time, I'm, I'm so glad that God gave me the strength to know that that was not the life I need to be in. And that's not the relationship I need to be in. That's not what love looks like. And I'm so glad that, that God allowed me to, to get out of that relationship now and not 10 years from now. Um, I said, wow, that's, that's a pretty powerful way to, to see this. Because I think if I was her, I'd still be angry. Just angry. Now, this young woman is moving into a difficult season you know, this is a season with lots of question marks in her life you know, she doesn't know what relationships look like she thought she knew what love looked like and, and then it became this really painful awful thing and um, she's not going to get married as young as she thought she was she doesn't have the life that she saw before her that promised land she thought she was approaching is now mysterious and hazy again but i believe like exactly as she said that God has given her the strength to enter into that season, that difficult season to discern who am I and what is love and what is healthy relationships and what are healthy boundaries and, and how can I guard my heart and how can I protect me and, and, and eventually my family and, and how can I understand what, what really meaningful, good, loving relationships look like again. Now that's going to be some hard work and, and this will take her years. But I know that God is leading her through this season because there is something healthier and holier and better for her on the other side. Do you believe this? Yes. Now, now maybe that's a part of your story, and maybe it's not. But, but hopefully you understand what I'm talking about when I say there are times when God leads us into what are difficult situations. But before we were in something that was actually, even though it may have been comfortable and well-known, that's the problem. Many times it's comfortable and it's well-known. It's so severely painful and it's so severely damaging to the person living in it that God absolutely leads us into something that is also challenging in its own right, but now there is a purpose. Now there is a clarifying moment. Now there is a way to achieve, to reach something that is promised and good and holy and better for our lives. Has God led you in a desert like that in your life? He has me. Now here's the problem with that kind of... um, that kind of season is, you know, God has to break the cycle for us in those seasons a lot of times. We have to have that cycle broken. Did you notice in our scripture this morning, God said this, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians. Now, you may have heard that and thought, "Jesus, God threatening them with plagues if they don't do what he says? no. What God is doing is he's saying, you have lived in this system of what you've known for so long, I need to call you into a new way of life. Because the way that you have lived for so long was not good for you. And in fact, it's so bad that you might not even know what good looks like. Have you ever been there in your life? You like forgot what good and healthy looked like? And God says, I need you to come under a new commandment. I need you to come under a new way of living so that we can break this cycle and you can experience goodness and holiness and healthiness again. That's hard work, and it requires us to do two things. Number one is we have to be, we have to be okay with leaving behind what is well-known and comfortable because frequently the most damaging things in our lives are well-known and comfortable. Amen? We get way too comfortable with, with damaging things in our lives. The second thing is once we leave those, we have to walk towards a promised land that we can't actually see. <laughs> That's really hard. Who likes to have all of the facts in front of them before you make a decision, who likes to know every single thing? Who wants to, when you go to, to, to rent or buy a house, you are reading every single line of that contract. All 75,000 pages. When you, when you agree to the user agreement on your phone, you read that thing, right? We got anybody like that in the room? Maybe you're, you're like that to a lesser degree. Most of us like to have all the facts in front of us before we make a decision. Here is the hard thing. When God leads us into the desert, we have to give up some control we don't get to paint a detailed picture of the promised land hand that to god and say this will do nicely thank you you know god's the one that leads us to a promised land that maybe we get an inkling you know we go oh, it's a land of milk and honey right we can we have an idea of what it should look like but we don't get to know all the details that's hard that's hard for me is that hard for you so here's what i know though there is hope in the desert when God is leading us, and the hope is that God is leading us. And the hope comes in the form of a spirit of trust that we have to adopt that is beyond ourselves. You know, I I tend to be someone who has a hard time, you know, trusting when I can't see everything in front of me. And we have to adopt this holy spirit of trust that says, God, I, I'm gonna allow you to lead me and even though I don't know what it looks like, I'm gonna follow where you send me and even if it takes longer than I think it should and it doesn't look like I think it should and it's messier than I think it should be, and it's more difficult, <coughs> more difficult than I think it should be, I'm gonna trust you. There's a famous prayer in Mark chapter nine. It says, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. I think for some of us this morning, we have a prayer that we need to say that is, Lord, I trust you, help me in my lack of trust. So does God want this for our lives when we go in running in sandstorms no but there is hope in God's mercy does God want this for our lives when God's leading us to the desert yes and there is hope in God's leading there's a third way that we find ourselves in the desert and that is that sometimes the desert simply finds us we didn't go anywhere God didn't lead us anywhere We stood still and the desert found us. What am I talking about? Did you know the Gobi Desert? You guys know the Gobi Desert? It's in Asia, big desert. It's getting bigger every single year. The Gobi Desert is growing by 1,400 square miles a year. That is four cities of Dallas every year, expanding. This desert is growing fast. There are people that didn't used to live in a desert that now live in a desert. 1,400 square miles every single year. Why is this happening? For two reasons. Number one, the world changes, right? The environment changes. Deserts grow and shrink all the time. That's the way the world works. But number two, it's growing at a very rapid rate because there are agricultural practices around the Gobi Desert that are super aggressive, and they are stripping the earth of its nutrients and its ability to sustain itself, and so it's becoming desert even faster. So on one hand, yes, the world is just sort of broken. It, it it becomes desert and doesn't and you know, that's just sort of the way the world works. And, and number two, we're we're contributing to that problem. The same thing is true in our lives. Sometimes we find ourselves in the desert because number one, we live in a broken world. And number two, the broken world is filled with broken people. And if you've been at the suffering end of the desert because of a broken world with broken people, you know what I'm talking about. There are things in this world that we can't assign to God and that we can't assign necessarily to ourselves or even to other people. There are things like volcanoes in Guatemala and in Hawaii. And there are hurricanes like Hurricane Harvey, which devastated all over the Caribbean and even the coast of America and in Houston. There are hurricanes like Katrina. You know, I remember when Katrina hit and, and, and watching, you know, my family is from southern Mississippi, so that hit really close to home. A lot of the homes in southern Mississippi were hit, but when New Orleans was flooded, you know, I remember, I remember hearing pastors telling me why they thought God sent that hurricane to New Orleans. Do you remember what they said? Because God wants to punish them. Now, where's the purpose in that? Get out of here! That's bad theology. You hear a theology like that? There's, I was in high school at the time. It, like I was watching this guy on TV tell me why he thought the hurricane God sent the hurricane to hit Katrina Do you, or the Katrina to hit New Orleans. Do you ever get the urge to like? I wish I had a superpower where I could reach through a TV screen and just and just throttle somebody. No, is that just me? You're like, stop talking! That's bad theology. You know, um, yeah. Sometimes. We just live in a broken world where there's hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes. We also live in a world full of broken people where there are bullies and there are mean people and there are vindictive people. And and, uh, the reality is sometimes the desert finds us just because we simply live in a world like that. We live in a world where our bodies are broken too and disease is a reality. You know, the AIDS epidemic, Ebola cancer these are all products of living in a broken world and I don't think that God sends AIDS or Ebola or cancer to try to teach people something I don't think God creates something evil like that I think I think there is hope however in hurricanes and in volcanoes and in cancer and in bullies and in everything I believe there is hope when the desert finds us why because I don't believe that God is in the creation of those things. I don't think God is behind the evil of tornadoes and disease. I do believe that God is in the is in the aftermath. I see God in the faces of relief workers. We had a we're going to be commissioning a mission team to go to Costa Rica this morning. I see God in the faces of those who would devote their time to helping and serving others who are less fortunate. I see God in the faces of the doctors who step into Ebola zones and not out of them. I see God in the faces of the nurses who care for those who are sick and dying and who are suffering from disease. I see God in all of these ways, in these redemptive ways of stepping into these places that are hurting and broken and saying, I'm okay being here. I believe in a God like that because God tells me in Exodus chapter 15 that he is the Lord who heals God is the Lord who heals. If you're the Lord who heals, that means you understand the world you're stepping into is hurting and broken. You understand that there are things we are dealing with that you wish we didn't have to deal with. Trust me, God's heart breaks at these things. But we have a God who doesn't just simply look at it and say, wow, isn't that terrible? We have a God who steps in and says, I am the Lord who heals. Look for me in the aftermath. Look for me in the redemption of these terrible moments. And so when you're in the doctor's office and you hear the doctor say, the test came back positive, I don't know that God is in the, is in the work of that cancer affecting your body. I, I believe that God could be part of the healing of that. I also believe God is part of the support system, the people that rally around you, the people who give you strength when you desperately need it. I think God is in all of those things. I am the Lord who heals you. God, there are some days when I just need God to simply be a healer. And that doesn't always mean that God makes the problems go away, but that means that God shows me care and love and mercy and grace in the midst of great evils. That we can roll up our sleeves and we can go to help those who've been affected by hurricanes. That that we can sit by people who just need to cry and don't need us to tell them it's going to be okay. I see God in all of those things. Do you? I believe that God is ultimately a God of redemption. I know this because God looks at, at... at pain and suffering that can seem senseless. Trust me, I, I, I know that pain and suffering can seem senseless at times. No one needs to remind us that this this is the world we live in. And yet God looks at that senseless pain and violence, and God sent his son into this world, who was killed through senseless pain and violence on a cross. And what did God do with that moment? He took it, and he redeemed every soul on this earth. He conquered death. He conquered evil. He rose victorious because God is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of healing and a God of redemption. Even in those moments that are so bad, we don't even know what to do with them, even when the desert just finds us. there are three ways that we find ourselves in the desert first is we go running in sandstorms i don't think that's what god wants for our lives but i think that god meets us in mercy in those places second is god leads us into the desert and i believe that god does so because something healthier and holier and better is on the other side and our hope is in trusting in god's leadership and lastly i believe that the desert can find us and that's a product of living in a broken world full of broken people and the hope is that God never allows brokenness to have the final word and that redemption is a truth that God will always make clear. So I want to close with this. However you find yourself in the desert today or tomorrow or next week or next month, I want you to know that there is always hope and that hope abounds. I also want you to know something interesting about deserts. Did you know, did you know that deserts are the second most diverse ecosystem in the world next to rainforests? Did you know that? That's kind of cool. I didn't know that. Rainforests. Now, when you think of a place teeming with life in this world, do you think of rainforests? You think of the thick brush and the jungle and all the animals and all the birds and all the everything in there. Do you think of deserts? More than savannas, more than prairies, more than deciduous forests, more than tundras, more than anything else next to rainforests, deserts are the most diverse ecosystem. There is life in the desert. There's beauty in the desert. The most extreme punishing desert in the world is the Atacama Desert in Chile. No rain has ever been recorded in the Atacama Desert. Now that is extreme. Over one million life forms call the Atacama Desert home. So yes, the desert is extreme, it can feel punishing, it's certainly difficult, and we end up in the desert in many different ways. But there is always hope, whether that's hope in the mercy of God, or hope in the leading of God, or hope in the redemption of God. And friends, let me tell you that in the desert, you can find life if you know where to look. So welcome to the desert. I'm looking forward to our month together. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning thankful that you are a God who meets us in the desert, who meets us in those difficult, extreme, punishing places in life, and you meet us with mercy and with trust and with redemption. You meet us with the love of a God whose heart breaks when he sees his children pain. God, we trust you this morning. We ask that you would allow our hearts to receive your mercy and your guidance and your redemption today. Not only for our sake, not only so that we can walk out of this church with our heads a little higher and our spirits a little lifted up, But, God, so that we could walk into a world that is one-third desert, a world where people are walking in and out of the desert every single day, a world where our friends and family might be in the desert right this very second, and we don't even know. And, God, allow us to reach out to them the same way that you reach out to us and allow us to extend to them your hand of grace that says, I am the Lord who heals you. Let us share with them the love of a son could take something as brutal and senseless as death and turn it into redemption and glory for all. God, we give you thanks for who you are and how you lead us this day. All this we pray in your son's holy and precious and resurrected name. Amen.